Good evening, and welcome to the Central Library, the Ian Pratt Street Library. And I'm Carla Hayden, Executive Director, and I must tell you, this is one of my favorite things to do. Um, and thank you to for joining us for another exciting and stimulating and provocative, we hope, night that's part of our Brown Lecture Series. I would especially like to welcome the members of the Alpha, Kappa Alpha, Epsilon Omega Chapter, and there are a number of you here. Yeah. We really appreciate it because their additional support made this possible tonight. Now this evening, we'd like to welcome to Baltimore and the Pratt Library award-winning journalist and author, Cora Daniels. Her wit and wisdom enlightens us on today's young African-Americans. And she opens up in her most recent and critically acclaimed book, Ghetto Nation, a journey into the land of bling and the home of the shameless. In a city that's majority African-American, we're excited to hear more from Ms. Daniels and her thoughts on the impact of Ghetto Moore's attitudes and lifestyles on American culture. Now the Pratt Library is very proud of Baltimore's strong African-American history mm -hmm. and culture. And we hope that if you get a chance, if you haven't already, if you could explore our African-American department in the new library annex. This wonderful department that we're very proud of includes more than 30,000 volumes of fiction, nonfiction, CD-ROMs, and reference materials. And many of you, I hope, have noticed the marvelous exhibit here on the second floor. We're commemorating the 115th anniversary of the African-American, Afro-American newspaper. And you will see things from their own archives. So really take a look at that because these are things that haven't been seen before in public. And we just want to mention that the Afro is the longest running African-American family-owned newspaper in this country, read by more than 100,000 readers in the Baltimore and Washington, D.C. area. So we're very grateful that all of you can be here with us tonight. And I'd like to remind you that our Brown Lecture Series, endowed by generous grant from Eddie and Sylvia Brown, continues next month. And on Wednesday, January 23rd, we hope you can join us for an evening with Bill Strickland. Now, Bill, some of you may know, is the president and CEO of Manchester Bidwell and the author of the inspirational book, Making the Impossible Possible. But for now, I'd like to introduce you to our manager of the African-American department, Vivian Fisher, who will introduce our guest of honor tonight. Vivian. Thank you and good evening. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Thank you. Uh, good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I am the manager of the African-American department here at the Central Library. It is my pleasure to introduce to you this evening our guest speaker as part of the Eddie and Sylvia Brown Lecture Series, an annual program that is offered twice a year by the African American Department. Our speaker this evening is an award-winning journal, dynamic, perceptive, and powerful voice from the younger hip-hop generation. The thought-provoking voice of Cora Daniels keeps it real as she discusses in her works Black Power Inc., The New Voice of Success, and her latest work, Ghetto Nation, a journey into the land of bling and home of the shameless. Now, many of you are probably wondering just who is Cora Daniels? Well, she's more than a wife and mother. She is an acclaimed journalist and author. 
she is a native New Yorker, and she lives in Brooklyn, New York. She is a graduate of Yale University with a BA in history, and she has a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. Daniel's works have appeared in Fortune, The New York Times, Essence, O, The Oprah Magazine, USA Today, Heart and Soul, FSB, Fortune, uh, Small Business, and Savoy. She has been a staff writer at Fortune and an editor at Working Mother Magazine, and she is, well, she was, she's uh, currently a contributing writer for Essence. In addition, she's also her own freelance journalist, so that's a, a good thing. Adding to her list of accomplishments, Ms. Daniels is a much sought after expert on diversity and business issues. She has served as a commentator on ABC News, CNN, CNBC, BET, NPR, and The Charlie Rose Show. In 2002, she spearheaded Fortune's first ever search for the 50 most powerful African-American executives in America. In 2005, her much acclaimed Fortune cover story, The Bravest Generation, examined the original black corporate pioneers and created national attention for this overlooked part of civil rights history. Her first book, Black Power Inc., was dubbed thought-provoking by the Washington Post and a must-read by Black Issues Book Review. Her much-anticipated second book, Ghetto Nation, takes, one, takes on one of the most explosive issues in our country today in this thought-provoking critique of America's embrace of a ghetto persona that is demeaning to women, devalues education, celebrates the worst African-American stereotypes, and contributes to the destruction of civil peace. Her investigation exposes the central role of corporate America in exploiting the idea of ghettoness as a hip cultural idiom, despite its disturbing ramifications as a means of making money. And she showcases black rappers raised in privileged families who have taken on the ghetto persona and sold millions of albums, CDs, Albums kind of dates us. And not so black celebrities such as Paris Hilton, who have adopted ghetto attitudes and styles in pursuit of attention and notoriety. This is truly a work whose time is now. Please join me in welcoming journalist extraordinaire Cora Daniels to the Inner Pratt Free Library in the city of Baltimore. I present to you Cora Daniels. for that generous introduction. It's, uh, it's very humbling to <laughs> hear someone else describe you. Uh, but thank you, Baltimore, and thank you, Pratt. And, and I'm, I'm very honored and, and proud to, to be here and, and be part of the, the Brown Lecture Series. And, and thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Brown, who I, for are here with us today also. Thank you. Um, Um, 
can anyone tell me, and I'm not going to be the only one speaking tonight, by the way, um, can anyone tell me what, what ghetto is? What does it mean when you hear someone say, that's so ghetto? Unruly. Unruly. Okay. Low income. Low income. Isolated. Isolated. Interesting. Tasteless. Tasteless. Ignorant. Ignorant. Oppression. Oppression. Unpleasant. Unpleasant. Uncultivated. Uncultivated. Part of the city. Part of the city. Part of the city. Stereotype. Stereotype. Mm -hmm. Stereotype how? In terms of mores. Mm -hmm. Like stereotype, like they're, they're illustrating a, a stereotype? Yeah, pimp prostitute, right here. Okay. It also can mean, uh, it also can mean, uh, use a person where it can mean hot. <laughs> 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 the other things I think that people were saying were, were, were negative. Thank you. No one likes the, the front row to be empty. <laughs> Anyone else? Wanna we're, we're, I've asked people to, to tell me what they what they what they think of when they hear that so ghetto. What is get what does ghetto mean? And this is this is this is private closed space, so we're we're all being honest. Okay. Well, I think I think it was interesting. We got we got a, a lot of first of all we got immediate <laughs> immediate responses. Things immediately came to mind. No one hesitated, um, and we had a lot of a lot of negative, a lot of a lot of stereotypical, a lot of negative stuff, and then we had um, I'd say one one really positive which was the, the, the creative or the, the survivalist. Um, around my way, I hear, I hear the word ghetto a lot. I hear it from young folks hanging out on the corner long past the time when the street lamps have gone. I hear it from the man boys who sit on milk crates outside my building playing cards and dice. I hear it from young white suburban teenagers putting each other down the way teenagers do. I heard it the other day in the doctor's office when uh, a receptionist was arguing with a patient over a copay, and in an instant their private little argument became public when the receptionist said in, in, in full head-waving intonation, don't make me get ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> when I was writing Ghetto Nation, no one ever bothered to ask me what the book was about. And once they heard the title, just like tonight, people just started telling me what they knew it was about. <laughs> uh, they just started, stuff started flowing out of their minds. Immediately, people started telling me about that. Back that ass up, nigga this, nigga that, booty shaking, broke than a mofo, baby mama drama going on in the world. A college professor said to me, you know ghetto when you see it. Despite all that we, we think we know about ghetto, ghetto actually has a history. Um, 
the original ghetto was uh, was in Venice in the 14th century. It was the section of the Catholic city where Jews lived, where uh, they were allowed to live, rather. Um, there were uh, gates that were locked at night that kept folks in and kept people out. Uh, by the 17th century, the, the, the Vatican encouraged the, the spread of ghettos across Italy, um, and each had its own justice system. And by the 19th century, um, the influences of the French Revolution uh, brought the gates tumbling down, and I think <coughs> Europe's last ghetto was in Rome, and it was destroyed in 1870. <coughs> then ghettos were erected again in Europe by the Nazis in World War II as a stopover to the concentration camps. And I, I hope I wouldn't have to describe what, what life was like in, in those ghettos. I think it's pretty clear. Meanwhile, as um, as the, the ghettos in World War II were coming down, um, back home here in American cities, ghettos were created by um, by housing discrimination, segregation laws, urban misplanning, I will say, um, where you have uh, highways and that isolate different parts of the city and, and, and artificially cut um, neighborhoods off. Um, and, and then, of course, a dose of old-fashioned racism. Um, that uh, trap black and brown faces in, in certain areas. Um, and uh, well, I was, uh, when I was writing, actually, I had, I, I read a, it was reading some tourism literature from uh, South Africa, and I, it was uh, startling to me to see uh, how Soweto was being billed as the, uh, the must-see ghetto of everyone's vacation. Um, and I think now ghettos have become full circle. Um, they're returning to, to Europe when, when folks, um, you know, just recently in the, in the news, we had um, uh, some stories about some of the, um, the uprisings that were going on um, in Paris. And, and when, you, when folks there say ghettos, they're basically talking about um, high-rise uh, uh, public housing uh, buildings that are, are um, populated by um, African and Arab Muslim immigrants. And uh, so it was, uh, again, interesting to, 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 to sort of read the word ghetto in the newspaper on, 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 a, on, a, daily, on a daily basis again. Um, so that's, that's the history. Um, truth is, Ghetto Nation, the book, is, is exploration about how ghetto has become chic for all of us. We live in a time where, where even Martha Stewart has proudly boasted on national television that she can, quote, get ghetto when she needs to. <laughs> and uh, she said this, this is about a, <laughs> a year ago on, it was the Thanksgiving, um, her Thanksgiving show, she was stuffing the turkey with Patti LaBelle, and I don't, I don't know what was more disturbing when I was watching Martha Stewart or that I had to hear her actually say that she can get ghetto when she needs to, but... Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, the truth is, I think ghetto is no longer where you live, it is how you live. Um, the truth is, it's a state of mind. And I'm here to tell you that it's a mindset that celebrates the worst. And I think that's what some of the, uh, the some of the, the words that were popping out of our, 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 our mouth immediately when, when I had asked that question, because that's what we were getting at. So, so it's not okay. Um, when I was looking for a Halloween costume for my two-year-old daughter, that I found pumpkin hoe Halloween costumes in newborn sizes. 
it's not okay that when I go to my local grocery store um, in, uh, in Brooklyn that the, the cashier can't do her job, which is to ring up my groceries because her acrylic tips are too long to press the keys on the, on the, um, the cash register. It's not okay that when I was a writer at Fortune Magazine that I got a press release one day. Um, this was about a new show on VH1 that was starring Nelly, and um, he, uh, he has a, a clothing line, Apple Bottoms. And they were um, going to be traveling across the country looking for models for, for his Apple Bottoms. And this, this show was described in the press release that was sent to journalism, <coughs> journalists as all access pass to ass. It's not okay that um, in San Diego, police are, are battling a phenomenon known as tennis shoe pimps. And these are our 14-year-old middle-class boys who are basically pimping out their 12 and 13-year-old classmates. These are, these are middle-class kids who are friends and agreed to sell sex for money um, so they could buy teenage stuff, <laughs> you know, like you know, iPods. And, CDs and, and things like that. And when the, the cops get involved, um, these, these I guess they're technically teenagers, 13 or teenagers, young teenagers, um, protest, well, we didn't do anything really wrong. We weren't, we weren't selling drugs. It's not okay that um, celebrities on, on the red carpet um, can gesture to reporters about how every woman needs to learn how to pole dance. Um, you know, the, the business writer may have to tell you about, um, there's, a, there's a, a, a retailer in Britain who, uh, you know, used this, this endorsement to the, to the next money-making logical step and created pole dancing kits. And these were um, miniature poles that were about three feet high and had um, little fake garters and play money. And the reason why they were three feet high is because they were sold in the toy section. So I would add all that to you, back that ass up, broken than a mofo, baby mama drama, because none of this is okay. The thing about a mindset is that it's contagious and therefore spreads, I think, infecting every single nook and cranny in our lives. Um, I think when we were throwing out words in the beginning, there wasn't any category, besides a, besides a negative one, there wasn't any category that you could put a lot of those words in. They, they, they crossed um, behavior, they crossed dress, they crossed language. Um, I, you know, I, I think most people had young people in mind, most people had young black people in mind, most people had young black poor people in mind, I think if we're gonna be honest. Um, but, um, um, you know, I think that that's, that's what happens with, with a, a mindset that infects every single nook and cranny of our lives. And like any illness, you know, sometimes the symptoms are hard to, to detect or recognize. Sometimes we don't realize we're sick until the pain is hard to ignore. And along the way, we get used to it. We get used to the discomfort. Um, we, we get used to how things are. And I think that's what it means to be infected with the mindset called ghetto. Like any disease, you know, some people might have a different name for it. You know, that's the, that's the slang that's the name that we're, we're calling it today um, but I think that can be make it easier for us to sort of fool ourselves that we're talking about someone else and that ghetto doesn't apply to themselves and um, I'm here to tell you that we're all sick
We're stuck in a time when the worst is celebrated in all aspects of our lives, from what we listen to, to what we watch, to, you know, I, I don't even get me started on, on the minstrel show, <laughs> on, on Vietnam, Flavor Flav, or out of New York, or any of that crap, um, to a lot of what we read, to more seriously what we accept in our relationships. No one can hear me? <laughs> Sorry. Um, to what we accept in our relationships, to even how we raise our kids or, or, or don't raise our kids. Um, I uh, I was in Atlanta. This was a couple months ago. I was in I was in Atlanta, and I was talking to a class of eighth graders. And uh, I started the conversation exactly how we did here. And I tried to get them to tell me what what ghetto was, since this is a word that flies out of their mouth thirty times a day. <laughs> and um, you know they were they were very eager to to basically point fingers at the, at their classmates and, and things like that. And um, and then I started bringing up examples to ask them if they were, you know, what was ghetto? And the, the, the one thing that we couldn't, we couldn't meet eye to eye on is I asked them, well, you, you, you folks are starting to date. What if, you have, what if you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend and you have someone on the side? Is that ghetto? And here I had a, a, a class full of about 100 eighth graders who argued to me to the end of the bell, to the bell rang, but that's not ghetto, that's normal. I think the bar has gotten so low that it's that I'm not even sure sometimes if we we can even find it anymore. Even scarier is when that mentality is is bottled, packaged, pressed into a CD, wrapped up, you name it, and then sold around the world. Um, because that becomes blackface across the globe. And you know, if you're you're lucky enough to to travel. Um, outside our borders, um, it's it's very interesting what people will say to you. Um, to you know, and when my husband and I travel to to see a young black couple, um, you know the things that fly out of people's mouths, and they're not trying to be insulting. Um, they're trying to um, they're they're basically trying to make a connection. They're trying to they're trying to welcome you, and they're they're excited. But the the stereotypes that that comes um, from their lips. <laughs> Um, is um, is very startling of of what what we are seeing like um, around the world. I wrote this book, and, and Vivian asked me this, and she's like, "Why did you write this?" And I said, I, you know, "I wrote this book honestly because I was tired of it. As a journalist, I wanted to shine a spotlight on stuff that was going on around us that we see every day that I had worried that we were becoming known to." As a black woman, I wanted to put my foot down to behavior that is destroying us. The fact that ghetto, the mindset, is so widespread, I think means that our expectations, our expectations of ourselves and our expectations of others has gotten too low. And that's the only way I think that behavior um, that shouldn't be acceptable becomes acceptable. Um, in writing this book, and, and there was a young man in the back who asked me, how'd you research this book? And uh, in writing this book, I spent a lot, a lot of time hanging out on the corner. Uh, hanging out on the corners across the country. And they're all pretty much the same since I've been And talking to folks. Um, and for me, this was the, and for, for nine months of this, 
this experience, I was also pregnant. Mm -hmm. And uh, never once did anyone ask me why I was out on the corner at two, three, four in the morning with this big belly. In fact, I, you know, I, I, I think it, I think it maybe fit in more, but you know, for, <laughs> for me, um, actually being back on the corner was 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 a homecoming for me. Um, I grew up. Um, as Vivian mentioned, I'm from New York City. I grew up in a tiny railroad flat apartment um, in a tenement building in Lower Manhattan. Um, I shared a, a bunk bed with my brother, and so the day I went off to college, um, my my dad wore a, a uniform every day. To, um, and I was a, a maintenance man in, in the projects near my house. My mom. Um, took care of a, um, a rich, older um, white woman whose kids didn't have time to take care of her themselves. I'm not projecting enough, I guess. <laughs> um, so growing up, I, I heard too often um, the, uh, the defeatist boasts of the corner about how living for today, because tomorrow may not come. Um, and uh, now I live in Bedside, Brooklyn, and uh, when most people hear where I live, uh, two words come to mind: uh, "Do or die" and "Big Up," as in "Do or die, Bedside," and "Big Up, Brooklyn." Yeah. Can go around the world. <laughs> so where I live, that's that's what pops out of people's mouths, and I think you know that's that's definitely that's definitely part of my neighborhood. I have I have indeed heard the, the, the pop of gunfire outside my, my window, and if you've heard that sound once, you've heard it too many times in your life. Um, the other part of, of Bed-Stuy that, that most people don't ever hear about is that it is it has the most black homeowners of any neighborhood in the country. So it is home to black doctors and black teachers and black writers and black entrepreneurs. Um, it's too glad that we never big up that. My conversation started with the corner in Bed-Stuy, and since, obviously since I can't project very well, you know that I'm not that much of a speaker, I'm a writer, so I'm going to read you a little bit um, of what I write, and hopefully this won't put folks to sleep. It was during my commute home from work one day. In the corner of the crowded subway car, a child was yelling. This is a stick-up, hand out your wallets. He was small, slim, engulfed in a red t-shirt, and his voice still squeaked. He couldn't have been more than nine years old. Maybe it was his giggling, but us grown folks looked up from our papers, and in a New York moment, no one reacted. There was something so unreal about it all that no one could possibly take it seriously. The child yelled again. This time he waved a gun. It was small, barely peeking out of his small hand. TV taught me that it could have been a 22. The, get, the giggling didn't stop, though. It could not be real. I'm going to shoot. One. I'm not kidding. I'm going to shoot. Two. What? You don't believe me? Three. Someone screamed. It was another child standing next to the first. The two started to giggle. It was a joke. People buried their heads in their newspaper. The child in the red tee tried to start again with threats to shoot. Even less people paid attention this time. The train conductor came into the car and gave the two an old-fashioned tongue lashing. He yelled at them like a parent would. All of us in the car cheered. When the train finally reached the next stop, the platform was filled with a dozen or so cops. All had their guns drawn as they peered into the windows. The train slowed. This was no TV episode. Now I was scared. 
The army of blue stormed our car yelling, where's the kid with the red t-shirt? Where's the kid with the red t-shirt? Newspapers safely in our laps, everyone started pointing. I didn't do anything, Red T and his friend, the screamer, whose part it was to scream, shouted back. I didn't do anything. The cuffs came out and the boys started to cry. It was the worst joke. The children, with their chests heaving up and down and short bursts and tears streaming down their cheeks, now looked even younger than nine. At one point, the cops started yelling at the dim-witted pair for not knowing police protocol. The screamer tried to stick his hands in his pockets to prove he didn't have, any, he didn't have anything. One cop snatched the child's arm as a frustrated pair went before passing on an obvious life lesson. Don't stick your hands in your pocket when a cop has a weapon drawn. His tone was as if he had told the kid not to touch the hot stove. The one in the red t-shirt did what was natural and tried to squirm away when the cop started to put the handcuffs on. Now you're going to resist arrest, an officer yelled. Another life lesson. The children left the train with their little hands cupped behind their backs. I'm still not sure if the gun was real or not. My guess from how the cops handled it was when they found it after they patted the kids down is that it was real but wasn't loaded. It doesn't really matter though, does it? We're all just left with why. The car, the car full of grown folks who couldn't muster a word when the kid with the red t-shirt first started yelling now couldn't stop talking. Some argued that the police shouldn't have arrested the screamer accomplice. He didn't do anything. Others argued that they didn't need to actually cuff the boys at all. People got heated. I couldn't stop thinking of their parents, Mama Screamer and Mama Red T, picking their sons up at the police station and what, are, what excuses they would make for them. I often find myself wondering if the children of Ghetto Nation worry about getting in trouble, or is that some quaint old school concern that is no longer relevant? Jamie Mahaffey, a high school basketball coach in, in Cincinnati, tells me, when I was growing up, making the right choice was more straightforward. Mahaffey's face has been plastered all over ESPN because the NBA bound number one and number two ranked high school ball players in the country were on his team. Mahaffey is more concerned with building great men than great players. His mantra for the team is, is that in life, these young men must always do for themselves. They have his cell phone on speed dial for the required check-ins throughout the day and to ensure that they keep out of trouble. And players complain that the mandatory group study session he supervises can be tougher than practice. The coaches' sessions have helped create a high school basketball team with not only the number one and number two ranked failures in the country, but also a team that has a great point average of 3.3 among all its players. The toughest part about spending his career around teenage boys, Mahaffey says, is, quote, the choices. That is helping the boys make the right choices. I never wanted to embarrass my parents, he said. I would never do anything that would. This is how I made my choices. I nodded my head because I knew what he meant. I too was taught growing up that I was a reflection of my parents. If I did bad, my parents looked bad, so I did good. Coach Mahaffey thought that is the biggest thing that has changed. They don't care if they embarrass their parents, he spit out and told them with disbelief. I nodded my head again because I knew what he meant. Why would getting tr in trouble be a concern when we are living in a, a world where such behavior is what's celebrated? Rap sheets and bullet wounds increase record sales. Celebrities make bigger headlines with their misbehavior than with their craft. Pop stars' criminal trials attract groupies. Athletes write books about their steroid use, and business execs are granted TV shows when they get out of jail. If this is the behavior that we as a society are constantly rewarding, then it's no wonder that Red T and the Screamer would rather imitate what they see on the corner than the behavior of a subway car full of hardworking people coming home from work. I think it's, it's much easier to sort of roll our eyes and, and tisk tisk and, and point our fingers at others, at the ghetto and others. 
it's much harder to recognize the ghetto in ourselves. But I think if we ever hope for a cure, an honest cure, then we have to recognize the signs no matter how slight. And the most common way that, that ghetto seeps from each of us is in our silence because our silence acts as an endorsement and it's time that we speak up. On the corners, I talk a lot to teenagers and, uh, you know, as I said, with the, the eighth grade class in Atlanta, I started our conversations the same way as I did here. And, and they were quick, always could tell me what, what was ghetto in an instant. Then I would ask them what is success. And, and more often than not, I got blank stares. And uh, these are the same teachers who could tell me in an instant what ghetto was. And then they had a hard time telling me about success. And, and granted, that, that should be a hard question because success should mean something different to each of us in, in this room. Um, but what troubled me was that if, if our young people can't define it for themselves, um, then how do we ever expect them to get there? I started out wanting to sort of find that point, you know, when our world got so ghetto. <laughs> and honestly, I couldn't find, I can't give you a date when we got here. I can't give you the time. Um, I can't give you the point. Um, and I think if there was just one point, um, it would be really easy to fix. I think that, uh, you know, instead we're talking about sort of a, a gradual slide downward. And that means it is going to take a gradual climb upward. Um, and that's a lot harder because it's a lot more work. Um, but I think the first step, and to me it's a big one, I think is, is for us to raise our expectations. I think that the, the most powerful weapon that, that we can have is self-respect. And I'm really, um, I think it's time that we realize that because because if we don't realize that, if we don't begin to raise our expectations, the corners will be right about one thing. Tomorrow will be worse. So, so let's raise our expectations today. And uh, 